all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am talking to Johnny Simpkin, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Swiftly, which is a mobility operating system that empowers um, municipalities for public transportation uh, uh, agencies to be more efficient and more reliable through verticalized data. So I'm very excited for Johnny to come on. Johnny, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Excited for the discussion. Yeah. Um, so why why public transportation? Give me the genesis of kind of why you wanted to, to work on this problem. Well, I so I, I was born and raised in San Diego, and I grew up uh, my entire life driving a car from A to B. And um, I was fortunate enough to sell my first company, which brought me from uh, San Diego to San Francisco, and I was living in the city. And right around that time, uh, I was seeing pink mustaches everywhere on cars. So Lyft was just getting up and running. Uber was getting up and running. I ended up um, selling my car and becoming fascinated with all forms of mobility. And I started taking a lot of public transit and I started to see this big difference in the rider experience between the information that you could get to take private forms of mobility versus public forms of mobility. And public transit's this thing that's really, really essential to cities and towns around the world. Yet a lot of the technology that was being used to power it was very legacy um, and very antiquated. And so I thought there's a really big opportunity to rethink the technology that powers one of the most inform, uh, important forms of transportation around the world. And so that was the birth of Swiftly. So you just said, okay, well, we, we need better, we be, we need better transportation efficiency. So I'm going to go solve this problem. I, I swear to God, like founders, like you guys think about things in such a sadomasochistic way that like, it just blows my mind every single time. I mean, well, I, 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 I felt the pain personally, right? So like I would, go to take the bus, right? And then I get at a bus stop and I would see the bus just leaving and I'd be waiting 20 minutes for the next one. And it, yeah, it was just so frustrating of an experience, yet something that was so important to my day-to-day life because I, you need transit to get from A to B. You need to go to work. You need to see friends. You need to engage with the real world around you. So yeah, I wanted to solve that problem. And it was something that meant a lot to me personally because I felt it every day. So in your discovery, um, you know, and you said, you know, the, you know, key terms, legacy, on-prem. Uh, well, what did the stack look like when you started to kind of like start to talk to these agencies um, in and around public transportation? Well, at the time, even the concept of real-time information for riders was relatively new. So rewind 2014, most of the technology that agencies were buying was for internal use only. Um, things to manage the transportation network. They were buying tools um, uh, that were predating terms like um, uh, cloud-based computation. It was before AWS was even in existence. So a lot of the software deployed, as you mentioned, it was on-prem. 
um, very legacy and built based uh, or built before any form of data standard existed for the industry. So there's this huge gap of information be, between some proprietary information internally used for operations, and then ultimately riders didn't even know where the bus was. Um, and then and so what happened was when Uber and Lyft really came out it all changed overnight, right? Because everyone in their pocket could see their actual vehicle moving in real time that they had requested. They knew exactly when it was going to arrive. And people wanted that same experience. Like I, I wanted that same experience for public transit to actually know where the bus was, when it was going to arrive and to be able to rely on that information. And so we came up with a method that used not the software that agencies had purchased, but the actual physical infrastructure that they had put onto vehicles, which oftentimes included GPS. And we created a way of using that GPS source that was already in the vehicle and just now starting to be shared with apps to rethink the entire flow of, of data and information to riders. So there's this pretty interesting moment where, yeah, Uber and Lyft changed what riders expected to see and what they wanted. Um, but also Google was just starting to work with, with agencies like Portland TriMet to create new data standards for the industry so that agencies could actually share information with apps like Google Maps or Transit, now Apple Maps and other applications. So it's just right at the very beginning of that. Yeah. So what, what, what year was that? Um, so we, we founded the company in 2014. When we did that, actually, uh, uh, there was very limited real-time information. Um, going back to like 2010, 20, 2007, that's when some of these standards are really starting to brew, but I would say only in the last three to five years have they become mainstream where a majority of agencies are starting to adopt them. Yeah, so when you mean like standards, do you mean there's like, there's all of a sudden, there's like a consortium of, uh, of a nonprofit that's like, hey, you know, all these, all these data sets with all these different agencies, um, I can imagine there probably were some homegrown systems too in some of these agencies. It probably all wasn't just out-of-the-box software, right? Well, so th that's exactly right. Yeah. So it was all homegrown, all proprietary to what the agencies were doing. And then, uh, and then in 2005, one of the things that Google really started to want to do in Google Maps was to show, um, uh, or at least to include public transit schedules. So the first version of a data standard for the industry um, was called static GTFS, or the, it's now called the general transit feed specification. It was originally the Google transit feed specification. Um, so that was just how to publish schedules in a way that was consistent across agencies so that apps like Google Maps could ingest it. And then when Uber and Lyft came, that was really when this the, the whole shift of, hey, we need to provide real-time information too because the schedule's wrong most of the time. That doesn't reflect things like collisions or traffic that are right. what yeah, breakdowns, whatever. What All happens. these things that make the world much more dynamic than what you can print. Do you think that... I mean, that's really interesting that Google was the, the um, I guess, the change agent that, that really started to, to really advocate for people that, you know, rode public transportation. Are there other examples that you can think of um, in which, you know, a big tech company like drives, I would say, you know, innovation within a legacy business like that? Because, I mean, that's just, I, that to me, that's very interesting that they were the ones that, you know, opted to kind of shake up an industry from tops down. Yeah. Um, well, is it too self-serving to say swiftly at this point? But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no. So Google was. I would say now it's really taken. You know, it's a life of its own. Um, sure. You know, in the public sector. I'm sure there are dozens of examples. It, it oftentimes the, the the way that these data standards get created, someone has to take a leap of faith at some point, and it typically has to be an organization that has enough pull to drive change. 
And Google right. Maps had that because they have billions of users using yeah. their products. And so, so maps are a big part of that. I, I can't necessarily point to specific examples elsewhere, but, but now at this point, what's become interesting for me, at least leading swiftly is uh, we're, we're probably the, I mean, there's no way to track this, but we're probably the largest or at least top two, um, uh, maybe even in the world around generating real-time information that apps consume. And so we, we are able to work with different app vendors now to start to create the next generation of what these standards can look like to be more dynamic and to be more serving to riders, which is a really fun place to be in. Yeah, no, that's an incredibly place to be. Yeah, I find that that really interesting. It's like they, they were able to leverage their network effect with their user base in order to kind of create like a really innovation in an in industry that isn't very innovative, right? Yeah. So, And you got to give um, the public sector, uh, so um, TriMet uh, um, did some amazing, in Portland did some amazing things. Um, and Bibiana on the team there specifically to create this standard with Google. So really, it, it's rare to see these moments of public-private partnership have such a profound implication on the industry, but it was great to see in this example. Mm-hmm. So I see Swiftly as becoming like the out-of-the-box platform in which these agencies, you know, manage their fleets, you know, uh, understand the route optimization, you know, give data to, you know, these other different applications that, you know, um, you know, these other, you know, big technology companies use to serve their consumers. Um, you're replacing either, you know, really legacy on-prem systems and or homegrown systems. Like, like the first thing that comes to my mind is what was your wedge <laughs> to get into this? I mean, that must have been like, what was the one thing that was your MVP to kind of prove out all of this different function features and functionality to, to become swiftly later? F- finding that wedge or that low friction path to at least get your foot in the door is really important. And, you know, you know vast majority of our work is, is not necessarily displacing, but complementing or augmenting. And then mm-hmm. you know, over time we, we, we tend to take on more and more, but, um, the wedge was really this real-time information piece. So if you if you rewind back to to at least 2016 when we were starting to really ramp up our deployments, and even today it's a vast majority of what we do, agencies have made very large investments in physical infrastructure in their vehicles. So they'll buy um, routers on their vehicles that have SIM cards, 4G, 5G, hopefully not 3G anymore, although we still sometimes see it just doesn't work. Um but uh, those routers brought internet connectivity to the vehicle. They also brought forms of GPS on board. Separately, agencies buy GPS systems. You need to know where your buses are. So agencies have already made this big investment in physical infrastructure to provide raw GPS data so that riders and their staff know where the bus is in real time or the vehicle. If it's not a bus, we do a lot of work with other modes too. Um, at the same time, most agencies in the country, because the static form of GTFS, um, the, the schedule, is commonplace now. That's been around for over 15 years. That's commonplace. Yeah. It's a commodity. They've already made investments to publish their schedule because they know that riders need to see that. So mm-hmm. the big wedge that we did was to take that static GTFS that almost every agency already has and to take any form of GPS data, which almost every agency already has, and they already publish it publicly, to apply modern algorithms and data science to those two forms of data to actually more accurately predict when the next bus will, or train will arrive at the next stop. And so then we were able to show 
that we could do a 20, 30, sometimes a 50% or higher improvement in those ETAs that riders rely on every day to decide, am I taking public transit or not? And so mm-hmm. when you deploy that using infrastructure that already exists, and you can do that, it takes us now oftentimes five to 10 minutes to add a new agency into our platform. So it really is out of the box using that infrastructure and that data that they already have. We see huge reductions in complaints from riders overnight because all of a sudden you can rely on the information that you're using to take transit. Mm-hmm. And so that's been our single biggest wedge is we don't have to do anything. We don't have to replace anything. We can use what agencies already have, those investments they've already made to instantly overnight yeah. dramatically change and improve the rider experience. Yeah, it'd be a nightmare and really a big headwind if you had to kind of replace hardware and sensors and all that other stuff. So you basically were able to take those that, that sensor feed and create a workflow and application that provided obviously a big pain point, which is probably, you know, complaints, right, from yeah. from from their from their constituents. We see that all the time, sometimes up to a 90% reduction in calls and complaints from riders saying, where's my bus? When's it going to arrive? Things of that sort. Um, I would just think that that would be like a telephone that they put in a closet and they just don't answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, some of the agencies we work with, they, before Swiftly, would get up to 10,000 calls per day. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, you, they, yeah. like the, the staff you need to manage that is is a lot. So it's really oh, yeah. Important. It was like it's like, well, where's my bus? How the fuck would yeah. I know? You know what I mean? Like, you know, like I can't help you. It's somewhere. <laughs> it's not broken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes <laughs> it's broken. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's a it's it's like this fundamentally important thing to to rely on. And so, how how did the end consumer at that time when you launched? I mean, I'm sure now there's apps and everything, but how how like when you first started, was it like displaying on like displays or or how how was that that used? Yeah, so, so I mean, our true story was we actually started off um, being frustrated as riders. So we started off, we built actually an app that just exposed the, the agency's data all those riders really quickly. That was the very first version of Swiftly um, was to be that consumer app. And, um, and, and so we launched that, we got about 10% of the entire city of San Francisco using that app in about two months. And then the number one complaint we got, which, which matched with our experience was, um, uh, that the, the arrival times were incorrect. Um, so we rated 4.8 to 4.9 out of five in the app store. And so we actually pivoted the entire company to be a data company. So we, we got rid of our app and we focused a hundred percent on the data and um, what we found, even going back to 2016, there were there was this app ecosystem. It was just very bespoke because every app was kind of trying to integrate with whatever custom feeds there were in every city. And we could not only solve the whole accuracy issue that we had talked a lot about, but we could solve the, the data normalization and consistency issue by adapting the GDFS real-time standard, which is the most prevalent standard in North America. There are a few others abroad. Um, but uh, but the app ecosystem are always existed. We just had to make it easy and scalable for those for those app developers to access correct and, and accurate information at scale. Let's fast forward your career for you know ten years, and you know you sell swiftly for a gazillion dollars, right? And you become a venture capitalist like most founders do. And how would you think about verticalized data companies as a as a business, I mean, do you, would you, in valuing them, I mean, would you think about them as like, you know, what is their defensibility in the market? Is it the naturalization piece that really is, because a lot of this data, you know, I mean, I guess the data is proprietary on the GPS side, but 
to your point, the, the Google standards were, you know, pretty accessible everywhere. That's not that's a commodity. So like, you know, looking at just, you know, uh, the level of data feeds that go into a verticalized data company, like where, where do you suss out like what's valuable and what's not? Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, value is probably its whole other discussion. Um, so, so you mentioned value, right? The questions mm-hmm. I'd want to know, uh, who uses it? What, what true value does it deliver? Time savings, cost savings, something else that's maybe intangible that's maybe more important to that end buyer. Um, uh, how many people use it? If it gets taken away, what are their alternatives? So all of those things relate to, to value delivery and then also the stickiness. Um, and then you brought up the wedge piece earlier, too. I think one of the big challenges with data companies is just how do you get started, right? Especially if you're dealing with proprietary data feeds. How do you get started? How long does it take for you to launch? Um, I think what I've learned is the importance of finding that wedge, finding that really low-friction way to get your foot in the door and to deliver immense value in a sticky way that is not going to go away in six months. Um, or a year, like most of our agencies stick with us for, well, we haven't been around for a decade, but many, for many of them are past the five or six year mark as customers, right? So how, how do you actually develop sticky long-term solutions? And right. so, yeah. What was that? And so like, and that's done. So you think that's, that's really delivered on the application layer, right? Like, how are you, how are the people using it? And then, you know, um, how do you just like keep them engaged and addicted to the product? The application layer or the data layer or both. So in our case, you know, we started with real-time information. That tends to be relatively sticky for a few reasons. One, we specialize in that. We're one of the only companies that specializes in these predictions. We do them very, very well. It's very accurate data. When we do it, it's connected to on-street signs, every single mobile app that riders are using, um, all of those LED displays. So y- it would be a pain to rip out because it's powering rider experiences um, at scale, but also because there is not a more accurate sol- solution, right? So you, for someone to knock us out, they'd probably need to be substantially better and we're, we're, we're pretty good at what we do. Um, it would take a lot of investment to get there. So, so that's one area of stickiness. And that's purely through data and APIs. We do about 5 billion API requests per year. So even if you didn't ever see Swiftly, know that we exist, it's pretty sticky just by virtue of the fact that we're sending data to so many different endpoints. But then you brought up the application layer. We have a whole other part of our platform, which is the actual back office tool that agency staff use to make decisions. So we have over 10,000 transit agency staff using Swiftly to make decisions every day. Those are real-time decisions like, hey, this bus is off route. What are you going to do right now? Um, to, hey, well, let's figure out what intersections are causing delays in the network. So maybe we can make transit more effective, more efficient, and more reliable. Um, and that mm-hmm. would then result in like a big five or 10 year infrastructure project to actually make transit move more effectively. So when you see these users, hundreds of users in many agencies using Swiftly every day to make these decisions, that's where the application layer tends to be very sticky because they can't do their jobs without a tool like Swiftly. And that really excites me because I get a lot of energy and enthusiasm by helping and empowering staff to do their jobs more effectively. Um, and so it's this very nice, like mutual, it kind of makes me excited to want to make the product even better and better because I know the impact it's actually having on real people's lives, not just end consumers, but also the staff that are making these really hard and important decisions and bringing that right data right at their fingertips at the right time. What do you think is harder to build workflow applications or data naturalization applications? 
I would say it's hard to answer the which one is harder. But in my experience, if the data that you are producing is not accurate and does not add a substantial amount of value, it does not matter how good your application layer is. Okay. Right? Like if we have this amazing, easy to use app, this dashboard that does all these great things, but the information is always wrong, it's a moot point. Mm -hmm. And so maybe more is just, I think about it more from a foundational level. Like we invest a lot of money in, in our core systems to make sure that we actually produce the most accurate and most complete information. Um, mm -hmm. in the industry because ultimately everything that benefits every single thing downstream, whether you're talking about mm -hmm. where you send that data um, to the actual users interacting with your system. Yeah. I'm just like wondering from your perspective, I mean, you had to go in, you had to pull, you know, sensor data, you had to naturalize it, you had to visualize it in a way that people can digest it and use it in their job. And then I, you know, would think then you probably build the scheduling and the workflow and the ticketing and all this other stuff that kind of, you know, is done on the back office side. So like from your perspective, was it harder trying to naturalize the data and visualize it or to make it meaningful? Or was it harder to get people off what they were currently using on the on-prem, you know, and like, and getting them to switch onto like the new SaaS product? Uh, generally, it's generally harder to change behavior. If you're yeah. talking about, um, Oh, it was you, like the data thing sounded like new and shiny. You weren't really replacing anything, right? Like that was like, Oh, this is like a net positive for everything. The, yeah. The core predictions, next bus arrives in next train arrives in, um, that, that table is very, it's very much augmenting what exists. It's kind of low friction for change. Cause what happens is a rider is using Google maps or a transit app or something like that today, tomorrow, they're still using the same app, but now the information's correct. Very low mm -hmm. friction of change. Right. Um, yeah, the, the other side is, hey, you have this workflow to do this thing. I see it, and this is now for agency staff, right? You have this workflow to answer a rider call saying, where's my bus? And when will it arrive? I see it take you 20 minutes to answer that call. And you can imagine a rider being really frustrated waiting on the phone. But that's still this behavior that the customer service agent has. I want to be able to train them how to answer that question in 30 seconds or less because I think that's a really good, important thing for the rider experience. Changing that behavior tends is way harder than anything else. Um, fortunately for us, to your point, we've invested pretty deeply in making our product really easy to use. And so um, it tends to be the case that agency staff want to use it because it empowers them to do their jobs more effectively. But you still have to change behavior, and that's always really hard. Sure. So um, I guess the question what I really want to know is, is how did it, were you able to package this up and sell it? I mean, municipalities generally have historically been as an, as a rule, not as an exception, pretty hard to sell into budgets are pretty tight. This probably didn't exist. Right. So how did you think about the offer and, and finding budget and navigating that cycle? Public sector procurement is very tricky. It's kind of a skill in and of its own right. Um, and I had to learn it, so I was definitely not an expert in the beginning. Uh, I would say, let's see, so how did we start? Um, the, the, one of the most important things, and, and actually there's some interesting, uh, I, I just came off a winning by design workshop. If you haven't seen it, it's a really good um, type of program where they share information and studies and, and train you on how to um, be more effective with selling and positioning. Um, they talked a lot about FOMU, so fear of messing up. 
that's one of the biggest challenges, let alone the procurement challenge in, in, in the government. It's fear of messing up is really big. It's big for private sector. It's probably even bigger for public sector. Um, and so we had to convince the industry that though we were a new company, we were, and, and you're not buying IBM when you're buying swiftly, that we were actually a very low risk option that was going to make their lives better. And so we, we actually like had to give some pretty crazy discounts in the beginning just to get those first customers to prove that we could do what we promised we could. Once we got those first few customers, then we were able to navigate. And then you get to how now an agency knows that, oh, I really need Swiftly. It can, it can solve you know for my 10 million or 100 million trips a year or even more. can make the rider experience better. How do you buy? Well, that's where you have to navigate down to each agency is it an rfp are they part of cooperative purchase agreement there's this whole playbook we built to understand how they buy and every agency every city is a little bit different um which makes it really really hard so you just have to work with them to understand what's most effective and easiest on their end um so so that's been a huge part of what what we've uh, really spent a lot of the time since the beginning of swiftly figuring out um, and that impacts how you package too because depending on their procurement they might have rules for contract sizes and how much they can buy. So maybe you can't do everything up front because it's too complicated to actually buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so aside from Swiftly, what's Johnny excited about in 2023? Oh, wow. Anything. Uh, well, I'm, I'll, I'll say maybe one thing probably everyone's really excited about. It, it's nice that the pandemic finally feels like it's behind us. <laughs> I am. Sure. Tell me about it. <laughs> It's just really nice to see people again in person. Um, and uh, uh, so, so I'm really excited about that. On a more personal level, um, I have, uh, like, throughout the pandemic, my, my son was born month one of the pandemic in April 2020. Um, my daughter was born about 10 months ago, so it feels like my family's coming together, which is really nice to see. And then generally in tech, um, we were talking about before we uh, in our last call, chat GPT a little bit. Um, what's happening around artificial intelligence is pretty crazy. Um, I'm really excited to see how that plays out. It's obviously going to shake up a lot of industries, but it's going to create some really exciting opportunities as well. So um, really excited to see that. And then, and then um, I'm following pretty closely the autonomous vehicle uh, world as well. And uh, I think that's still a little bit further out until it's at least mainstream, but really excited to see a lot of movement happening there. If I was to call your wife right now and say, like, how present is Johnny being an entrepreneur, <laughs> right? I don't know. Father. <laughs> well, I have her on the other line, so, you know, <laughs> I'm going to patch her in. You, you can see my face getting red here. I'm, I'm not going to answer it. I'm just going to say, don't make the call. <laughs> I mean, how do you balance that? I mean, young kids are hard, man. I mean. Uh, I, uh, if you figure that out, if anyone does, let me know. <laughs> I'm trying. Yeah I, yeah, I know. Tell me about it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely difficult. And, you know, it takes a very strong um, spouse, wife, husband, whatever, to, to, to be um, the home um, support, you know, while their, their significant other follows their dreams and, you know, puts the hours in. You, well said. And all I can do is, stress a lot of appreciation and love to my my wife for doing that so she's mm-hmm. really really been supporting me every step of the way what's something ridiculous about you johnny <laughs> <laughs> uh the one that gets most people to laugh all the time uh when i was younger i uh, got second in the california state games for table tennis or ping pong um 
Oh, nice. Under I, thought, so. I thought you were going to say I used to kill kittens or something like that. Oh, no. no. <laughs> I know that. Hey, if, if, if there's blood involved, I'll, I'll be passed out on the side. You don't want me to. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, what do you like to read? Or do you read? Um, I do. I, well, I, I'm, probably my favorite thing to read is the news. I read the news every single day. Um, no, I, I, I like to read. It's typically... Um, I don't, I don't like to read fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I typically like to read just anything I can learn from. Um, but usually it's just uh, not usually books. It's more reading over the web. Like something just is interesting or I want to learn something new or go down a rabbit hole based on what I read in the news and then try to, to learn about it online. Is it, I mean, do you have a hobby? I mean, it's so hard to have a hobby as an entrepreneur, right? Your hobby is kind of like in your passions is your business, right? So there's not really much room for anything else. I, I was just talking about this with someone two days yeah. ago. Like literally most of my life is work, family, and if I can, working out. If I can get 30 minutes working out, like at least I just feel way better. But um, that's pretty much all I have time for. I've, How's your I've, diet? Social media. What was that? How's your diet? Uh I think really good. You know, yeah. I eat a lot of vegetables, a lot of lettuce. Nice. A lot nice. Of salad. Yeah. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you, man. No, I, uh, no, it's good. I had a pizza, but it had vegan cheese on it last night. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, I just think that, you know, it's, I just find interesting, like how people take care of themselves when they're in high performance businesses. Like it's so, it's so difficult. And, um, you know, food, sleep, personal enjoyment. Like entrepreneurship is one of those one of those things that um, that like you encompass your passion in it. So like it it, it is in itself your hobby and your life. And you yeah. know, like usually people don't hate being a founder, you know, because it's so adrenaline driving. But they're so like the the idea of balance i mean it's, it's kind of ridiculous right when you think about founders but you know i just i always think that's always interesting to to figure out like you know usually people have like kind of quirks like kind of what they eat and you know how they do things and and um you know how, how they're how they're working out and you know taking care of themselves i will say i notice a huge difference in my mental performance um based on my my physical health so i i do try to work out every day if i can um I'll definitely, I do like cheat weekends, like Fridays through Sunday. I'm not eating the most healthy, but Monday through Friday, if I can work out 30 minutes to an hour every single day and eat healthy, I, I find I, I'm bring, able to bring my best self to work. So <laughs> yeah. Are you, uh, do you just go to the gym, you run? Um, yeah. So I, I normally get up. So I Monday, well, Monday through Friday, get up at six. I'll do, uh, I have a Peloton or go for a run or, or do, uh, pull-ups, push-ups, things of that sort. I don't really lift weights, mostly body weight stuff, but I'll alternate between. Yeah, no one's got time to go to a gym, right? Like, it's like going to a gym, like you're killing an hour or two hours, like right there. Peloton, I think, is ingenious. It is phenomenal. I love it. Yeah. Um, One of my favorite products that I've purchased in the last few years. Mm -hmm. What uh, what company do you have a crush on? Oh... You know, this, it's going to sound so cliche because everyone says it, but I, 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 I got to say Apple. I mean, I, Dude, I, it's such a great company. This is like, you look at, I look at my Apple watch, my phone, my computer. If, if you just like were to accrue the amount of time I spend on one of their devices, it's literally all day long. Minus when I'm watching TV, although 
I, and I don't use Apple TV. So that's the one. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it basically touches my life almost every single day. So I got to give some credit where it's due. You going to buy the goggles? Uh, you know, I'm on the fence. Uh, I probably will just because I'm curious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if I'll actually ever use them. I'm more just the curious individual. I like to know what's happening. Awesome. Well, Johnny, you're doing, you're making the world a better place. I mean, you know, enabling public transportation, which is so pop, you know, especially with people that can't afford cars. Right. And, and, and I mean, it's such a huge, important, not to mention, you know, like carbon emissions, like all this data that, you know, probably no one knows about. It's, it's a real, um, um, virtuous, uh, endeavor. Are you, is there like tailwinds right now with like, um, infrastructure reduction act or whatever, what do they call it? Inflation reduction act and yeah. infrastructure bills and all that stuff. Is there, is there, you know, good money for that with you? Infrastructure bill. So yeah, it's huge in the sense it's, it's the largest federal investment in public transit ever. Um, so, so it's really, really big in that regard. Um, the challenge I think that a lot of agencies are fa- public transit agencies are facing is federal funding might be higher than it typically has. Um, sometimes state and local budgets, which are other big funding sources, have declined. And then from a ridership perspective, post-pandemic, a lot of agencies still have lower ridership today than they did pre-pandemic. So all of those factors are impacting the amount of revenue and potential spend that agencies have. But the infrastructure bill was, was huge. Uh, huge for the public transit industry, but also I think just for this country in general, especially as we look to um, hopefully address some of the, the carbon emission challenges that we've been facing. Awesome. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody, if you like it, please subscribe, share it, tell a friend, write a review. And we drop an episode every Tuesday. So Google my name or the Capital Stack, and you'll get one every single week. And uh, next time you go on your phone, just know and look for a bus that Swiftly is probably powering that with its verticalized data application. So thank you, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.